0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Contours podcast series, a production of New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. I'm Nick Harris, Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation here at the New Lines Institute, and today I'll be leading a discussion on the Russian war in Ukraine, its geopolitical effects, and a forecast on what to expect in Russia and in Ukraine in the year ahead. I'm joined today by two globally recognized experts on Russia, Ukraine, and the geopolitical effects of Russia's war in Ukraine. First, Eugene Chelsovsky, the Senior Director for Analytical Development and Training here at the Newlands Institute. I'm also joined by Jeff Hong, a non-resident fellow here at the Newlands Institute and a doctoral candidate at the London School of Economics Department of international history. Thank you, Jeff and Eugene, for joining us today. There's a lot to cover. As most of you know, US President Joe Biden made a clandestine visit to Ukraine in Kiev, where he and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky walked around the Ukrainian capital, and the US President reaffirmed American commitment to Ukraine. In the Ukrainian military effort against Russia to the very end. What does that mean exactly? And what does it mean for the world as you enter into the second year of this conflict? Eugene, I'd like to go to you first to get your thoughts on the big picture of what has developed in the Ukraine conflict over the past year, and in particular, how it has impacted the geopolitics of the world and what we can look toward moving forward.
1: Sure. Thanks, Nick. So over the past year, we've seen some pretty significant and dramatic developments as it relates to Ukraine conflict. First, obviously going back a year close to this day on February 24th, we had Russia launch this massive full scale invasion of Ukraine that caught a lot of people off guard, whether that's the Ukrainians themselves, not so much the US which had been warning against such an eventuality for several weeks if not months prior to that and we saw Russia make some major gains early on in the conflict but what has happened and transpired since is that Ukraine not only defied many expectations by withstanding the full-scale invasion of uh, by Russia the Ukrainian government under president Volodymyr Zelensky has remained intact and Ukraine has actually been able to regain significant amounts of territory that Russia captured early on in the, in the initial months of the war. And that has really been due to several factors. One is that the Ukrainians themselves have proven to be very valiant in their war efforts, very organized, and really as an entire society been able to unite against this Russian invasion. Another factor has been the support from the West, which has come politically, economically, and most importantly, militarily, in terms of providing Ukraine weaponry uh, military assistance, logistical assistance, things of that nature. So we've seen Ukraine be able to withstand that invasion, push back, but at the same time, Ukraine faces a lot of constraints. And what we have now, almost a year into the conflict, is a sort of grinding war of attrition, where Russia continues to try to push on capture the territory, particularly in between eastern Ukraine and Crimea to to really fortify that land bridge in southern and eastern Ukraine. And we have seen the reverberations geopolitically well beyond Ukraine, whether that is Russia's isolation by the West or attempted isolation from the international system. We've seen NATO more united now perhaps than ever before, but also some challenges in, in terms of keeping this fight going. So this is pretty much where we stand at this point one year into the conflict.
0: Jeff, I want to turn to you. You have such deep insights into Russian thinking, decision making. What is the state of play within Russia? How is the Putin government approaching this next year? And would you assess that it has achieved its objectives geopolitically and can continue to build momentum for a long conflict in Ukraine? Basically,
2: the only thing Russia has achieved is the regime's accelerated its own self-destruction. This conflict was began due to bad information and a bad understanding of the situation on the ground. It started at lower levels with people telling their bosses what they wanted to hear and made it all the way up to the chain of command, where the leadership became increasingly isolated and out of touch with what the situation actually was. From my perspective, this conflict has left Russia poor, less stable. And as time goes on, it is time is very much against Russia in this conflict. So obviously, as Eugene rightfully pointed out, Ukraine has some challenges in being able to sustain its war effort, but it's sustaining that war effort primarily relies on the Western industrial base, which is increasingly gearing up in a material way to support To Ukraine's war economy, and I think we'll continue to be able to do so effectively. Russia, on the other hand, is increasingly economically, politically, and internationally isolated. Basically, by launching a full scale assault in Ukraine, they achieved everything they didn't want to happen. Sweden and Finland are both fast tracked now to join NATO. Even Russia's traditional allies or people that it saw it could do business with, India and China, are increasingly turning against the conflict. And domestically, This has basically bled the last of the plurality out of the Russian political system. People have fled abroad or just become robotically supportive of the war because no one has a better idea of what to do. And there's no good exit strategy here without admitting defeat, which the regime doesn't want to do. But it does not have any options really available at this point. It can continue to grind, but that's only going to accelerate its defeat.
0: Eugene, you know I want to pick up on a point that Jeff made about the role of China and India with the geopolitics around this conflict. It does seem that it 's unclear the extent to which either of those powers and really the Gulf countries, Turkey, nations in Africa, Latin America, and in some in Europe as well, and potentially even among the American public or at least a cohort of American lawmakers. The extent to which they are willing to go all in to support Ukraine or support a negotiated settlement to this conflict before Russia is really satisfied. And so this to me is a big question moving forward to 2023 and beyond. If unfortunately this conflict were to continue past this year, how would you assess All these various actors that are not directly in the conflict itself, but could potentially be enabling factors in Russia's ability to continue to wage war in Ukraine for years to come.
1: Sure, that's a very important question, Nick. So I think if we look at just taking a step back and looking at the West strategy as it pertains to the Ukraine conflict, there's really two key factors one is obviously supporting Ukraine in in defense against the Russian invasion. And we've already discussed how that has led to some significant successes for Ukraine and for the West. The second component, which is isolating Russia from the international system, that I think has actually been a lot more complicated and mixed in terms of the West strategy. So Clearly, the EU and and NATO countries, uh, for the most part, have all been united against isolating Russia, whether that be sanctioning Russia, whether that be diversifying away from Russian energy, things of that nature. But as you point out, Nick, there are key countries that fall outside of this Western paradigm or pro-Western paradigm. You mentioned China and India, Turkey also, the Gulf states, These are countries that have actually chosen not to isolate Russia, at least not to the extent that the West has in terms of sanctions and and economic diversification. And in fact, we've actually seen a lot of these countries increase their economic ties with Russia. And I think this is an important point because it's that isolation, you know, especially in the energy sector that the West was targeting. But that's the thing that Russia has been able to maintain. Its economy has not collapsed as some thought it would its political system has been intact. And really, we've seen a lot of these countries basically choose not to side with either Russia or the West in a significant way, but maintain their economic relationships with both. So this is, I think, one of the key factors that has enabled the war essentially to last this long, enabled Russia to maintain its system, albeit not without significant challenges, as Jeff already mentioned. But those challenges have so far not proven to be Enough to threaten Russia in in terms of its war efforts, at least in the short to medium term, or russia 's overall system, so I think it, these are the kinds of countries that will be really important to watch moving forward.
0: Jeff. It seems that what Eugene is outlining is in some ways a contradiction to the idea that is sort of very popular here, at least in the United States, and sort of what you hear in the foreign and national security policy discussion, um, and some of what we hear coming out of the U.S. Congress from the U.S. administration about Russia's ability to continue this war. And it seems that there is, in fact, a way that Russia could sort of play the geopolitics of the situation just well enough that it can kind of hunker down, it can have external lines of economic engagement, that it can sort of transition itself to some type of wartime economy, the regime can reconsolidate itself now that it knows who its enemies are and police internally, perhaps more effectively and sort of just grind out this battle and really play chicken, if you will, with the West. And this is a huge question that's looming before the Biden administration. And we see just a discourse as we record this discussion this week with the Munich Security Conference that's happening, the fact that the administration is trying to toe the line of being supportive of Ukraine, being supportive of Zelensky, being supportive of the rising star in the Ukrainian uh, military defense ranks, Budanov, to say, yes, we support Ukraine as far as they want to take it, but – We'll let circumstances in the ground dictate what happens here and what the end state is. That does seem like a type of environment where if Ukraine doesn't play its cards very, very well, and the West isn't able to get this sort of global agreement that what Russia has done is so far beyond the pill, that it has to be sort of punished and ostracized, that it does seem that perhaps against conventional logic, Putin and his government continue this war all the way to the end of what it would define as victory conditions. I want to ask you, do you see this type of scenario emerging and what kind of victory conditions would be acceptable to Putin and those that support him?
2: It's a very interesting question. But my basic answer is the longer the war goes on, the more it becomes impossible for Russia to win what it would consider even a limited victory. Now, Eugene rightfully noted the government didn't collapse. The economy in Russia hasn't collapsed, but it's in the process of collapsing. So I'll give you some tangible examples. The Russian government has cut all non-defense spending by 10% across the board. That's a huge contraction way beyond any other austerity measures they've previously made. Industrial output is falling across the board. And in wartime industries, you're seeing a significant contraction in output. I'll give you one example that was actually just published this morning. The Institute in the Study of War says that Russia has lost half of its operational tank force in a single year of conflict. So Novaya Gazeta published a report just recently that Russia is able to manufacture 250 new battle tanks per year and rehabilitate up to 500. All right. So they've lost close to 1,600 in a single year of conflict. That's well below replacement rates. Politically, Russia has been completely hollowed out. The feedback system that people previously relied on in order to kind of mediate with the regime has collapsed. The people you need to run a modern economy are leaving the country to avoid mobilization or just get the heck out of falling standards of living and diminishing prospects. The political elite have all fallen over each other trying to out-hawk one another, but that just means nobody has an alternative plan. So that really limits their options. Uh, As for playing it out, okay, you don't have the equipment and you're not gonna have the manpower soon. They've done one of these mobilizations. They're about to do another one, but they have not yet mobilized people from moscow or saint petersburg which per capita have the lowest casualty rates and they haven't done that because it would be so destabilizing to the regime not just in terms of protests we know protests probably aren't going to materialize at this point because people are so suppressed but the point i continue to make is empires don't die quickly they die very slowly very gradually and then suddenly all at once and i think we are kind of witnessing this incarnation of Russia's death throes. Because as far as international isolation goes, okay, yeah, on the one hand, you have government to government relations. But on this other hand, you have business to business relationships. There was a report that came out at the start of the war, something like 80% of Russian industries were reliant on some form of foreign imports. And most of the sources for those have dried up or been shifted to alternative imports, largely coming from the Central Asian states or China. But that's just not a one-to-one comparison. There's increased cost and there's diminish in quantity. So you're paying more for less of the same things that you need to run your industry. And the people you're doing business with now are people who don't mind getting on the justice department's uh, radar for secondary sanction busting. So that means you're largely dealing with criminal elements and that's all throughout the supply chain. So essentially, Resources are drying up on uh, a daily basis. Um, things like dental implants have now become so scarce outside of Moscow. People are literally traveling from as far away as Vladivostok and Kusk to have dental work done. So yeah, and, and I don't think this is sustainable in the long run. Can they manage it for a couple of years? I mean, yeah, regimes can function under harsh sanctions. We've seen that with Iran. We've seen that in North Korea. But in both cases, these were much less developed, much less integrated economies that are also have a much more tangible idea of why they have to stand up to sanctions and a much more consolidated power base. The recent events and divisions between Russian paramilitaries like Wagner and its leadership and the regular army and its leadership – to the point where we've actually seen what I find to be substantial or plausible rumors that they've been shooting at each other on the battlefield, to me, tends to indicate that the regime is not resting on stable footing. So I think the longer the war goes on, the worse it's going to be for Russia. As for what Ukraine can achieve, well, there's always the people warning against escalation. And for some reason, there's been an increased whisper campaign against Zelensky's government in the West. I think it's because he's been very effective in using the war as a means to go after entrenched ukrainian oligarchical interests and we've seen some evidence of them counterattacking on the public relations front but ukraine is only strengthening over time while Russia is only weakening and gradually bit by bit the west has become more and more supportive as time goes on it takes a long time for these things to shift and to resettle but the macro trends are very much against russia
0: very interesting, Jeff, and I appreciate that you lay out for us, you know, the complex challenges that the Putin government faces in trying to gird itself for a long struggle with Ukraine. Eugene, I want to turn to you because my question coming out of Jeff's comments, what is the best playbook that Putin can use moving forward? I know that we don't want to go too deep into the mind and psyche of Vladimir Putin. But in the context of if you are using empathetic analysis and you're trying to understand, okay, what does Putin want to come out of this year? The year from now, it's February 2024. What does he want to have achieved geopolitically? That's my first part of the question. But because you've also analyzed very closely, Eugene, how some of these other Important actors like China, like India, like the Gulf states, like Turkey have approached this conflict. At what point do they say to Putin, okay, we're done. You have gone too far. Or alternatively, we've reached a point now where global supply lines, where our own ability diplomatically to sell this and our engagement with you uh, has run aground. What does, when does that happen or does it happen?
1: I think, you know, as Jeff rightly points out, Russia faces a lot of constraints in waging this war against Ukraine. We've seen, you know, the economic pressure that's been placed against Russia, which, as we've discussed, hasn't collapsed the Russian economy, but it's certainly placed it under significant strain. We've also seen the military constraints that Russia has faced, you know, having to pull back on several of its thrusts within Ukraine, now really having by necessity to focus on that southern and eastern Ukrainian theater. Or even there, they're facing some significant challenges. But I would also mention that, you know, Russia is not the only constrained actor here. Ukraine, despite its successes on the battlefield, despite its ability to basically even remain as an independent state and get a lot of Western support, which has seen significant increases, you know, in recent months, that there's no guarantee that that support will be sustained by the West. And unfortunately for Ukraine, it really does depend on that Western support. Its fate is not in its own hands. And we've already seen some indications coming from top level leaders within the West, within the U.S., and it's reflected in public opinion polls, that sustaining Ukraine militarily in terms of all the material, in terms of all of the financial commitments is, is not something that's guaranteed to last forever. And indeed, the U.S. is basically saying that, you know, this spring offensive that Ukraine is reportedly preparing the counter offensive to what Russia is currently doing. This is really Ukraine's time to make a decisive action, essentially, because beyond that, there's no guarantee that that kind of support can be sustained. And in addition to that, you know, the political constraints also are there not only from the West, but as as you bring up, Nick, Russia is not isolated internationally as much as the West would like to think it is. India has increased energy imports from Russia. The Gulf states have, even though as they've helped Europe diversify from Russia, they're buying more Russian energy so that they can send their own energy at a higher price to Europe. So that just goes to show that these countries, they have a lot of self-interest, but ultimately they don't want to get pulled in to either side. And 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 certainly from a political perspective, they don't support a a Western dominated world order. They support a multipolar world order. That doesn't mean that they support Russia necessarily, but they do want more agency for themselves in this international system. So all of this is to say that both Russia and Ukraine face constraints into how far they can go with this conflict. And I think that's what's really going to be framing these next uh, few key months moving forward.
0: Can I ask the both of you, and I want to start with Jeff and then go turn to Eugene, because one of the big questions that's going to face everybody is this. Can there actually be a return to a negotiations process between Ukraine and Russia in the near term? And by near term, I mean over the course of this year and by early next year, because it seems that the window for that process is narrowing. And the concern that I have heard from certain folks here where we are in Washington, D.C., is that you reach a point sometime in the indefinite future where the United States has to respond to other crises in the world, uh, not to mention the China challenge, but other crises around the world. And because of its emphasis and focus on Ukraine and in Europe, Eastern Europe, it just can't. And then what? And as we know, Klauswitz says it that, you know, war is diplomacy by other means. At this point, it's become a moniker in the context of this conflict. But is it even possible to imagine a return to the Minsk process or the Normandy process? Or is, are we really looking at an end state here where one side or the other, Ukraine or Russia, actually decisively wins a war? And what does that look like? Jeff, I'll start with you.
2: Well, Nick, it's an interesting question, because on the one hand, my first instinct is to say, no, it's not possible to return to a negotiated process in the near term, because Russia has proven itself to be such an unreliable actor in that and such a disingenuous actor. I mean, the Minsk agreement was underway. The Normandy process was underway. And Ukraine, especially the Zelensky government was willing to continue those talks. And then Russia went and launched a full-scale invasion, which the Ukrainians, due to their history, have framed, I think quite rightfully, as not just a war of national freedom, but a war of ethnic and cultural survival. So I don't see a avenue where Russia will say, okay, let's go back to talks, and anyone will believe anything they're saying, unless they're willing to make significant concessions which we know they are not because the biggest critical flaw in the Russian leadership especially the senior leadership's collective delusions about this conflict is that Ukraine is not an independent actor they have a very hard time giving agency to Ukraine in any way they they see it as a direct proxy of the west which is not true by any means and in terms of sustainment i mean this is why Ukraine is regearing its economy to be able to support itself more rather than um, having to be as reliant on the West. It will be years, if ever, before Ukraine is able to produce equipment on par with um, the Leopard tank in mass quantities. But we have to remember, Ukraine already has a pretty extensive industrial base, which is already retooling to help meet those ammunition shortcomings that have been plaguing it. They have an extensive aerospace industry, which is retooling to help manufacture replacement parts for the aircraft they still have. And the U.S. is already in talks with countries around the world, essentially for a one-to-one exchange. Places like Mexico and Colombia or Brazil will send their Soviet-made or obsolete American hardware to Ukraine in exchange for modern American kits. And the Ukrainians will be in charge of refurbishing that, which is something they're already well – underway in as they deepen these industrial links so ukraine is again i'll go back to my earlier point that time is on ukraine's side because while western support is critical in the short term indefinite western support at this level is not something they need to sustain in the long term they need to sustain support long enough to give ukraine the ability to sustain its own war effort and that if we're talking about a fully globally integrated russian economy that would be a pretty tall order. But because the Russian economy is facing such horrific constraints, especially in its defense industry, where you can't just put together modern defense tech easily, it requires multiple inputs of high end systems that Russia is simply not capable of making. So you either produce substandard equipment, which they seem to have been doing, or you try to rely on those previously unreliable importers, I pointed out. So There is a scenario to me where in the next five years, Ukraine is at a point where it can sustain its armed forces at the level they currently are at. But what they're what they're currently doing with this Western equipment they've been importing is they're expanding their capabilities in order to retake as much territory as possible. And really, the question comes down to Crimea. Is this going to be a Sinai situation where Ukraine stops just short of total victory and essentially agrees to enter into negotiations under the threat of taking back the last of its disputed territory. That's a possibility. But at the same time, we have to consider the domestic Ukrainian scene. Zelensky is very popular right now, but he's going to be much less popular if he turns around and enters into negotiations without having achieved a very clear victory. And I think the people of Ukraine feel more empowered to change governments that they don't like. In terms of Western popular support, I want to go back to this point Eugene brought up because I think it's a valid point. And yes, popular support in the West is declining over time for Ukraine, especially in elite circles, but popular support turns on a whim. And as we see the US get into a more deeply retrenchment and more deeply, I would say kind of a xenophobic outlook. Any politician who comes out and openly advocates cutting off aid to Ukraine and then does it. Like, it's one thing to say you're going to do it to please your base, and there's another thing to actually go out and do it. It's hard to do that. Remember, the U.S. remains supportive of, involved and supportive of South Vietnam long after it was apparent that was a losing battle. So these things take a long, long time to undo once you get that kind of commitment. And I think that commitment will lessen over time because currently... The U.S. and the West has been sending Ukraine fish, but they're increasingly trying to teach them how to fish, if that makes sense.
1: To return to your original question about the prospects for a return to negotiations you know, this year, I, I definitely share Jeff's pessimism on on the diplomatic front for all of the reasons that he mentioned. And it's clear that from the Ukrainian side, whether that's from President Zelensky himself, whether that's from opinion polls that have been taken within the country, there's very little appetite amongst any Ukrainian, essentially, for a, a negotiation that entails relinquishing any territory that it lost to the Russians, not only over the past year, but also going back to 2014 when, when it lost Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine. And that, I think, is a reflection of the successes that Ukraine has faced on the battlefield. At the moment, the negotiations are playing out literally on the battlefield. Ukraine feels like it can regain the territory militarily. Russia obviously still feels like it can or is at least trying to achieve its military objectives. But neither side has been able to have that decisive victory. There's been some indications uh, of Ukraine, as we have already talked about, Going for a more aggressive counter-offensive in in the coming months, potentially to include Crimea. But this is when we have to factor in the red line, so to speak, of Russia, which it's it's hinted at in the past in, in terms of using things like tactical nuclear weapons or even biological weapons. But for for many reasons, it it has you know refrained from doing so, and I think it will be very careful with actually using such threats rather than making them rhetorically. But having said all that, I think at some point, you know, wars must come to an end. And sometimes it happens in a surprising way, and and perhaps even sooner than some expect. So I think ultimately, the next few months will show us a lot in terms of what both Ukraine and both Russia are able to achieve on the battlefield. But eventually, one side or maybe even both sides will become exhausted. And that's when the the countries that fall out of the pro-Western or pro-Russian sphere, you know, countries we've already talked about, like Turkey or the Gulf states, could play a significant mediating role. We've already seen them mediate things like prisoner exchanges between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which Turkey and the UN mediated. This goes to show that there is still room for diplomacy to take place even as the war continues. So whether that can be ramped up to actually produce an overall peace, there is certainly reason to be skeptical of that. But I wouldn't rule out that possibility entirely.
0: So I want to ask, you know, there is this perspective that if you you go all the way up and you take a sort of 30,000 foot viewpoint on all the different geopolitical dynamics, in some ways, Putin's war in Ukraine is a proxy conflict between the United States in particular and China in that Russia, by distracting the West, in the United States in particular, by sapping Western and American military resources, attention, diplomacy, um, forcing, The eye, if you will, of the U.S. on Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, and leading to dynamics whereby Russia becomes a more present focus, whereas the U.S. has to fight for attention on China, that it benefits China for this war to drag on indefinitely. I've heard this in some quarters. I want to ask the both of you, from your perspective, to what degree is Putin's government in Russia of a type of proxy for a larger conflict or competition, depending on how one wants to phrase it between the United States and China and I want to start with Eugene, and then go to Jeff
1: Sure, so yeah, that's a interesting and uh, dare I say provocative question because you usually these kinds of conflicts you know are framed as this is a proxy war uh, for the West, essentially with Russia with Ukraine just serving as a means to an end. But it interestingly bring up the role of China, which obviously, as we've seen the conflict in Ukraine play out, there is a growing tension between the U.S. and China over everything from Taiwan to the South China Sea to now spy balloons, which are hovering over airspace. And so I think without answering your question directly, certainly China is looking at the situation in Ukraine very closely. And it's looking at how the West has responded to Russia, not only militarily, but using its full arsenal of tools, economic, political, and otherwise. And I think this is certainly framing China's decision-making on what it plans to do and how it plans to do it when it comes to sensitive issues like Taiwan. So I think China is going to be very careful. Obviously, Russia has been proven its willingness to use military deployments abroad, particularly in the or more Soviet sphere, but also beyond that in kind of its claim to great power status, so to speak, or at least regional power status, whereas China is much more careful and guarded in that respect. But that can't be expected to last forever. And so I think China is certainly taking note of what's going on and then crafting their strategy accordingly.
2: My understanding is China's only reaction to this conflict has been absolute... And total despair, because essentially what you've seen happen here is you've seen China's potential co-aligned power. They were never going to be allies. There's too much deep running tension, but self-destruct in a war that was completely unnecessary. I, I don't know where this comes from, this this assumption that China is somehow an inherently expansionist power. I think a lot of it is just a misreading of basic political science. The Chinese Communist Party is not actually a Marxist-Leninist entity. It's a nationalistic party with red bunting. Its primary focus was and remains domestic concerns, domestic renewal, domestic stability. That's the entire premise of their whole literature, their whole reason for being. Yeah, Taiwan factors into that for a number of reasons because it challenges their overarching narrative. One is it's seen by some as a vestige of Colonialism, which China claims to have banished after the century of humiliation, to so it used to be, and in some cases, some people claim uh, continues to be a uh, alternative government which directly challenges the, pa- the party's monopoly on power. I mean, it's still formally called the Republic of China. So this whole idea that Russia is some kind of proxy, it doesn't really bear discussing because it's so patently ridiculous as to be ludicrous. Now, on the other hand, the effects the conflict has had on the U.S.-Chinese dynamic is important because I'm going to be radical here, and I'm going to argue that it has prompted a more restrained approach towards the U.S. among senior Chinese leadership – And a more aggressive approach among junior elements of the Chinese power structure. These spy balloons, or this spy balloon singular, because it turns out the other three were benign objects, according to the latest NORAD reports. This spy balloon is a great example. There was an interesting article in CNN that noted that many U.S. analysts believe that senior Chinese leadership had no idea this program was underway. This was a couple of junior guys who had some budget to play with. And put together a spy balloon program because they wanted to look good to their boss. They wanted to spend their all of their funding before the next year. I don't know. But it illustrates the bureaucratic incompetence and lack of control you're going to get in an entity as large as China with very little input. And the Chinese aerospace industry and aerospace sectors are particularly prone to this because they're technically all militarized, which means they're highly secretive, which means the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So therein lies the challenge for the U.S. And the problem is, is that, again, the Chinese Communist Party being a nationalist party with red bunting means that they are very sensitive to provocation from the U.S. So every time the U.S. holds them up as the global boogeyman, it narrows that window for dialogue. Because popular opinion actually matters in China. We saw this with the COVID protests. And people expect the party to stand up to foreign imperialism or to foreign bullying as they see it. I mean, considering their history, and that was the reason the the Communist Party was founded in the first place, was to drive out the foreigners and renew China. It's expected. My hope is, is that the conflict will make China more restrained in trying anything drastic because people keep bringing up the Taiwan scenario, which drives me up the wall because it's nuts. Launching that kind of military operation and amphibious landing would be way more logistically and militarily complex than Russia's overland invasion into its former territory. And Russia failed miserably in that. And as a result, is now seen as weak and impotent on the global stage militarily and increasingly cut off economically and politically backward. Putin basically undid 30 years of work in less than a year. China risked the same result if it launches an attack on Taiwan and it fails miserably. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that the conflict in the short term will have a sustained impact on the relationship. I think in the long run, there will be some kind of impact, but I'm not yet ready to guess what that will be. But we can hope that it will lead to a more restrained and reasonable relationship as both sides see conflict for what it is, which is inherently destructive and unable to attain their goals, but in fact, contrary to their goals.
0: So my final question for the both of you, and I'll start with Eugene and then go to Jeff on this question. Perhaps the most important question that will face the Biden administration by the end of this year or early next year is whether yes or no to allow the Ukrainians to go for Crimea. Now I want to ask you Eugene first and then turn to Jeff my final question. If you're standing there in the room with President Biden and his national security team, and that question is put forward, yes or no, we will allow Ukraine to go for Crimea. The question of the year, and due to the ramifications of the answer to that question, potentially the question of the, the rest of modern history, dependent on Russia's reaction, yes or no should we allow Ukraine to go for Crimea? And very quickly, why? Eugene?
1: Nick, you're going to hate my answer, but I'm going to say it depends. And I say that because when you consider what Ukraine going for Crimea would entail, and the kind of response that it would provoke from the part of the Russians, that is something that would give the US some pause, especially if you start to consider the use of things like tactical nuclear weapons. Now, I should point out here that while it's clearly in Ukraine's interest, and this is their stated goal, is to reclaim all of the territory that they lost to the Russians, as we talked about, not only going back to last year, but going back to 2014. I don't think that's necessarily the goal of the U.S., at least not in and of itself. Obviously, the U.S. and its NATO allies want to support Ukraine. They support Ukraine's territorial integrity. And in a perfect world, Ukraine would be able to reclaim Crimea and all of the territories that it lost. But ultimately, what the U.S. is interested in is a stable and rules-based order in Europe, which obviously Russia has threatened. But to go for everything and to be able to risk the kind of blowback, not only militarily, but what kind of impact that would have on the global economy and really reshaping the global system. I don't think that, that the Biden administration can state or would state that it's an unequivocally yes to Ukraine reclaiming Crimea. They want that to happen. Ideally, that would happen diplomatically from the standpoint of the U.S. But as we've talked about right now, those negotiations are happening on the battlefield. And what the U.S. is doing is trying to very carefully calibrate all of the military, political, and economic factors and repercussions of what such moves would entail.
2: Nick, my response is basically it's up to the Ukrainians. This is the problem I have with how this conflict is often framed. It ignores the agency of Ukraine or Russia. Yeah, the U.S. plays a big role, and the decision of whether or not to continue to support Ukraine militarily and diplomatically would be something you factor into something like this but ultimately, the decision rests with Ukraine. It's their country. And if Russia chooses to retaliate, that's going to be a big problem. But I don't really see how the U.S. can tell Ukraine not to accomplish their set goals in their war effort. In my mind, I think Eugene's pretty on point. It'd be ideal for the question of Crimea to be addressed diplomatically, especially after the Putin regime has collapsed. So I think the most likely scenario we'll see for an end of this conflict is Ukrainian victory just short of retaking Crimea, and it will not end with a peace treaty. It will end with a ceasefire, much like the Korean conflict did, and it will remain a technically ongoing but frozen conflict probably for years, at least until the Putin regime implodes, or whoever replaces him might be just as bad or even worse. So we'll see how things go on. But to my mind, I think it's just absolutely correct that Ukraine should strive to recapture Crimea. I think they have the legal right. I think they have the moral right. Uh, and I think the U.S. should not stand in their way. Uh, however, of course, that is the problem, though, right, is would the Russians reach for the red button? I don't think they would. I don't think they're willing to escalate this conflict in real terms just to salvage Vlad's ego. But we'll have to see how things unfold. But if I was standing there and I had to answer a yes or no question, which we all know politicians hate, but I'd have to say yes, go for it.
0: Thank you very much, Jeff and Eugene, for a robust discussion on the geopolitical effects of the Ukraine war now that we are approaching a year since the war was initiated by Russia and what we can potentially expect the year ahead. We will continue here at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy to keep a sentinel stare on the war in Ukraine, its geopolitical effects, and the questions that are facing U.S., allied, and adversarial policymakers. All the best, and thank you.